This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It is now my pleasure to introduce my fellow co-chair, Dr. Dan Hybrid. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and distinguished guests. The last time the United States hosted this conference in 1990, the AIDS community was overwhelmed by the HIV onslaught of the 1980s. AIDS was a story of exotic infections crusted with despair, discrimination, and fear. As many of you know all too well, this story was unfolding all around the world and change the story we did indeed. We have come such a long way since the first antiretroviral was approved, transforming HIV from a death sentence to a chronic illness and committing to treat those all around the world. My story with AIDS probably starts with my first microbiology course and I was fascinated with infectious diseases. In fact, I was probably an infectious diseases junkie. I went to medical school at Duke University, and then in 1981, I read about these five cases of exotic infections, which turned out to be the first published reports of AIDS cases. I was literally on the edge of my chair when I read these reports, and then I applied to do my residency training in internal medicine in San Francisco and was accepted in the program. And at that time, I became a frontline provider of people with AIDS right when the epidemic was breaking in San Francisco. It was a a really overwhelming experience from the standpoint that there were one after the next of young men coming into the hospital with many different kinds of infections and cancers that had not been seen before by the senior physicians. I was in my uh, 20s, but I was the same age as the people who were coming into the hospital. And I would have to say it was not lost on myself or my colleagues that we were right at the point of our lives where we were realizing our dreams and we were taking care of young men and young women whose dreams were being crushed. When AIDS surfaces in the United States in 1981, it really erupts in four major cities, and San Francisco is one of them. San Francisco General Hospital and Ward 86 become a centerpiece of the response in the city and trains all these doctors who end up making their career in AIDS and fanning out all across the country and the world. I was working in treatment from the, from the very beginning when we had one drug, then two drugs, and then three drugs. So every time we got access to a new drug that we could try, it was exciting. And we'd see a reduction in the level of virus but what happened was what we called the check mark. The amount of virus would go down and then it would come back right up. So this was really a journey through drug development where there were moments of enthusiasm and then there were great disappointments. So I certainly remember the day, the paper, the fax machine when the results came back from one of the three drug studies where we were working on, where the virus actually stayed suppressed. It was at that moment 
I knew everything was going to change. When AIDS drugs first started to really work in 1995-96, it was remarkable. People who were certainly going to die got out of their beds and went back to work. But the drugs were toxic. They were hard to take. Lots of pills every day. You had to do it on a schedule. Maybe even get up in the middle of the night. And then slowly the drugs got better and better. They started combining drugs into one pill. Made everything simpler. And there were some doctors who said, hey, this is a virus like any other disease. People should get treated right away. Don't wait. And San Francisco General was at the forefront of starting people on treatment very early. And now, in 2016, that's the standard worldwide. My entry point into the global arena of HIV was Durban 2000. And it was Durban 2000, the Break the Silence meeting, where run I've been working in HIV therapy. And I went to Durban, and I was like, I need to be more involved in this as a scientist, as, as an activist, um, and as a citizen of the world. So after that, I became much more involved in the International AIDS Society. I did education and teaching, also expanded my research to start working more in Africa after Durban. And then I was really just such a professional um, honor to be asked to co-chair the International AIDS Conference in 2012 when it came back to the United States. What happened at that meeting, there was the recognition that we had the science, that we could start talking about controlling the epidemic and the beginning of the end of AIDS. And at that meeting, UNAIDS brought out a campaign of getting to zero, zero new infections, zero death, zero stigma. In 2012, a bunch of research findings come together that lead people to think, hey, we've got the tools now to really end AIDS epidemics. And San Francisco comes out of that period of time with this idea that we've got three pillars that we can build on to end the epidemic in our city. They call it getting to zero. And the idea is they can knock back the virus so low that the epidemic will start to peter out. The first is PrEP. Okay, pre-exposure prophylaxis, it can reduce new infections by persons uninfected with HIV, taking medicines by over 90%. I generally take these every day in the morning, right after I wake up, because I always have to wake up. Um, today we're doing it in the afternoon, but it's a little blue pill. It really gives an opportunity for people who are not HIV infected to protect themselves and to take an active role in, um, in staying free of HIV. Can a city like San Francisco bring its epidemic to an end without PrEP? Well, we tried. We tried hard for many years, and uh, we were still seeing more than 400 new HIV cases per year. Uh, in an era when we had um, tremendous success in testing and getting people into treatment. Once PrEP started scaling up in 2013 and really became uh, popular in 2014, we saw a 29% de uh, decrease in uh, new HIV cases. Come on in, Jason. So you've been tested several times before. Was your emotional reaction to being tested any different this time? Yeah, actually this last time, uh, always before there's a background level of slight anxiety because I don't always practice safe sex. You never know. Um, you can never trust anybody fully. 
unless you've seen their test that day. And I, if I think about it, the last time I tested, um, I wasn't, that level of anxiety of am I going to be HIV positive really will, like, if it was there, it was so far in the background, it was unnoticeable. Cover it up, girl. Make me like pretty. A lot of my friends are on it, and they're like, like give me high fives, and they're like, yay. Couple friends are like, finally, like I've been worried about you. Like I'm so glad. Um, I haven't really had any negative reactions. We live in San Francisco, and I mainly hang out with a lot of queer men and women. We're very open, so nobody's to my face, giving me any guff about it. I also hear folks talk about how it's reduced stigma considerably, especially HIV positive men who come in and, and test with us that do screenings and they're like, PrEP has been amazing for my love life because people aren't scared of me anymore, right? I'm actually like a viable lover, someone that they can engage with and then talk to and not be scared of. And so I think that it's opened or decrease the barriers in our community. The second one was to enhance linkage to care through a novel program that we had started in our clinic called RAPID. Luis, how are you doing? Pretty good. So the RAPID program is all about getting people on therapy as early as possible. From my perspective as a doctor, first and foremost, I believe, and the data now support this, that if you let the virus replicate on its own, even though it doesn't cause AIDS, it causes permanent irreversible damage to the immune system, which will play out and cause badness for the next several decades. So I'm a fan of getting people on therapy immediately to preserve immunologic and ultimately, you know, complete total health. And then finally, from a public health standpoint, um, HIV transmission is dependent on level of viral load, and that's not the sole driving reason to do it, but it is absolutely a secondary benefit to starting treatment on diagnosis. All right, and so you've gone from two pills to one pill. Mm -hmm. Must like that. So I got a call from a clinic here in San Francisco, and the tone that they were um, speaking to me was um, one that they've never used before, and they couldn't tell me what was going on. If you have an STD, they tell you what you have, and they tell you you need to come to get treated. They didn't tell me it was wrong over the phone, so I assumed what had happened based on my behavior recently. He was sexually active at the time, and when he came in and started going on PrEP, these antiretroviral drugs, we found out that he had just become HIV infected probably about 10 days earlier. And his virus, which he had acquired 10 days earlier, was just now becoming detectable. And just by chance, we started therapy on that day. The interesting thing about Luis is he's on the road to a cure. He's one of these really unusual individuals who started treatment so very early that the amount of virus in his body is incredibly low. His viral reservoir is so small that they've probed in all sorts of ways to find the virus, and they can't even find it anymore. Doesn't mean it isn't there. All sorts of people around the world looked like they had cleared the virus from their system, they went off antiretroviral drugs, virus came screaming back. That could happen with Luis. But he's right at that borderline of the edge of knowledge of 
how small does a reservoir have to be before you really just get rid of it and are cured? I don't personally see like, much benefit to going off meds for myself, aside from the long-term health effects. I don't know specifically in what way, but like, I do know that antiretroviral medication like, does, have some, does, does do some damage to your body long-term. But um, I'm currently like, not even thinking about that. The third pillar is what's called retention. People with a lifelong chronic disease keeping them in therapy. And we had developed a model here, which was really part of what we call the San Francisco model of care. And one of these best practices is expanding this model where essentially that we have support systems, nurses, social workers, and what we call navigators. Very. Morning, bud. How's it going? People that help our clients stay in a care system and people um, who help people when they change insurance and all these obstacles that come up for everyone, whether you have HIV or any other disease, make it difficult to stay in the care system so that they are retained in care and that their virus just stays suppressed. We're seeing fewer HIV diagnoses now here than we have in years past, and that's partly due to PrEP, but I think it's also mostly due to viral suppression. The city's motto is the city that knows how, and I think what we're seeing is that we're taking the research and we're figuring out how to make it accessible in the real world, and then try to export that model elsewhere. Antiretroviral therapy is one of the greatest success stories in modern medicine. And what I think about a lot, and I've thought about through my career, is how do we maximize antiretroviral therapy to control the epidemic here in San Francisco, and how can we maximize antiretroviral therapy in places in sub-Saharan Africa where the epidemic is affecting 5, 10, 15 percent of the entire population? Diane Havler runs an HIV-AIDS program at San Francisco General Hospital that's been at the vanguard of putting into practice AIDS research findings for a very long time. They're translating all of that to this setting. On this island today, about one in three adults are living with HIV. Sometimes when I'm giving a talk, uh, maybe in a, in a room maybe of 100 people, I have uh, everyone look to the left and the right, and I say, you know, imagine one of the three of you is living with HIV. That's the reality of the people living on this island. It's been devastating for the, for the individuals, for their families, and for their communities. The primary question that we are trying to address in search is that if we can succeed to identifying people, testing people, getting them on treatment and virologic suppression, can we halt the epidemic in its tracks or put the brakes on? That is our primary question, is what impact will we have on the epidemic by testing and treating everyone with HIV? So at the time when we started, it wasn't known. But right now, it is known that it is beneficial, but we still think the study is very important, if not more important than before, because although it has been shown if you treat everybody, they get benefit, 
reduce transmission, but nobody knows how to do it. So one of the things that we are trying to do in search for fishing and other communities is to talk to them and ask them, okay, it's not that you're not complying with what we want you to do. How do you think we could do this, which would allow you to um, adhere and to participate in your health care? What they've done, I think, that I think is clever, is they've asked, how do we draw them into the healthcare system? How do we find ways to attract them to get an HIV test, and if they are positive, to get on treatment and stay on treatment? And what's interesting is they have this community health event at the center of their effort that says, let's really make it attractive for people. And what I find really interesting is they've made men the center of it. Men have been very difficult to, to engage in HIV testing, care. Men do not usually go to hospitals for anything, you know. Anything medical is probably belongs to women. At the very beginning of the study, we went to the communities and we said, well, if we were going to try to offer testing to everyone and we wanted to do it in a common community event, how would we do it, and what else would you like to have happen there? And they told us. And we've incorporated many of those things into the campaign. And some of those things include um, high blood pressure. They want to know how many of us have high blood pressure. Diabetes. How many of us have diabetes? And malaria. People are concerned about malaria. So one of the things when we offer HIV testing, as opposed to conducting it in a vacuum, we're conducting it in a health fair setting. What was going through your head the evening before you ran the first one of these? To be honest, we were really nervous. We had talked to the community. They had inputted into the design. We had all the tents set up. We had all the chairs lined up. And we were thinking, honestly, is anyone going to come? And so that's, that's really what we thought. And so slowly people started uh, uh, coming in, little by little. And then pretty soon all the chairs started getting filled. And then we had another problem which was a good problem, was that our capacity, we had underestimated how many people would come. One of the challenges is many fishermen probably would want to have get tested, but it's not convenient. The fishermen often work all night, and they sleep during the day. Also, the lifestyle, uh, historically, of many of the fishermen is you engage in other activities. And this could be transactional sex, oftentimes mixed with alcohol and other drugs also are not uncommon here. It's just the mixture that, that just brings about the, the rapid spread of HIV. So if in order to get an HIV test, you have to go to the clinic, which is open during the day, that itself is one of the barriers that we can overcome where we offer them at night specifically for the fishing community. As part of our study, we have employed community health workers. Such people are very, very important. We've used them to follow up people in the communities, people who are not compliant to therapy, some of them who are HIV positive. We have used them for peer support. UNAIDS has put out very ambitious goals 
for the world, which is that we need to strive to achieve knowing the HIV status of 90% of the persons who are infected, and globally we're only at 50%, 90% of those individuals to start treatment on, and then 90% of those individuals to suppress the level of their virus in their blood with our treatment. So when we started search, um, we strove with the model that we're using to achieve 90-90-90. And visiting here and seeing our site, you are seeing 90-90-90. What's really fortunate for much of Africa is this collaboration has not only involved the best and brightest doctors, nurses, community health workers here, they've been getting help from the best and the brightest in the United States. I mean, Diane Havler and her team, these are people who are cutting edge. You know, if, if you lived in the United States, you would want to be treated by these people. And here they are, bringing their knowledge, bringing their skills, bringing their training to Kenyans and saying, take over, take what we know, do this. I think the future is bright. There are lots of efforts to see how we can best do this. And I think the such study is contributing to that effort of ending the epidemic, at least to learning some lessons that can be shared with the rest of the world about how you can do it. We don't want to be congratulating ourselves of what we've done in search because 90% is only 90%. And we don't know if it's going to shut down the epidemic. And that means that we are failing to reach 10% of people. And I think until we successfully reach the other 10%, um, our work is not done. It's really difficult to get to that last 10%. I mean, we saw that in San Francisco. Yes, Jason Lloyd is staying on prep and Luis Canales is taking his antiretrovirals. He's undetectable. Even Barry Stover, who lives in an SRO in the Tenderloin, he's doing well, he's undetectable. But then there are people like Kenny Grossenbach and Michelle Campbell. They're living on the streets in San Francisco. They both have serious crystal meth addictions. Kenny's living with HIV. Michelle has started on PrEP, but everything is challenging for them. I just realized, you know, I'm dying, so I thought it was like the end of the world. You know, I thought that, that, that HIV would be like a, um, it's like a curse, you know, like, and I'm gonna die this horrible death. It's very, very emotional, but but then I finally realized that if I if I take these medicines, I can I can be I can live a normal life. We needed to be responsible. We want to have a kid, and um, we just needed to take the steps um, to keep me uninfected and get his health back up. My main priority is, is sadly saying drugs. And, and it's hard, but you know, if I could get get at least a roof over my head where I could have some shelter or or somewhere where where I, I have a, like a safe spot, I could probably see myself taking my meds regularly. We were both doing really well when we felt stable, and you know, we had a, a routine, and it was easier to take care of what we needed to take care of. So ever since he got kicked out. It's just been a struggle, and then so we want to get high just to not have to think about it or, or feel the, the hardship. So it's just a mad cycle every day, same thing. And I haven't been that good taking my meds either.
I kind of feel bad, like, like really, like a piece of work, you know, like when if I would have just stopped and thought before I reacted to so many situations, my life would be different. Our life would be a lot different, and I regret so many, so many things. I haven't taken my medicine in I don't know how long. Three months. When was the last time you took your medicine? I took it three weeks ago. I finished the bottle that I had the first time I got it, so I had a gap of like a month of even taking any, and then um, I started taking them for like three days, and then it just veered off. And we have the prescriptions at the pharmacy. We just need to pick them up and just really be accountable for each other. I, I don't. It seems so easy, but I don't know why we have such a hard time. Right now in San Francisco in 1990, most of the people who are living with HIV know their status. So we're doing quite well in the city in terms of that first 90. Then it falls off a little bit in terms of people on treatment and suppression. And then really one of the Achilles heel for people all in San Francisco, in the country and around the world is retention. How can we make it so people stay in care with a complex, often fragmented healthcare system and other competing um, demands and structural barriers that people have to care, which might have to do with housing, substance abuse, and mental illness. So in terms of how we're doing numbers-wise, we still have about an infection a day in San Francisco. That's really astounding when one thinks about we know the science, we have resources in San Francisco, so what we want to do to get that one, you know, an infection, one a day, down to, by 2020, to about less than 30 cases a year. Ultimately, the control of the AIDS epidemic is going to require not only a broad, strategic, and most effective use of antiretroviral treatment, but also a cure and a vaccine. And it's only with treatment, treatment used for prevention and treatment, cure and a vaccine that we are going to finally be able to end this epidemic. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.